Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, 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 and welcome to another edition of Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Great to have you with us. Hope you're having a great week. Don't know whether you're driving around in your car, out on a walk, out on a run, walking the dogs, whatever you might be doing, hanging out at home on your computer, but it's great to have you with us. We thank the Believe Network for believing in this program. We thank Dave Armbruster, our producer engineer, for all of his outstanding work each and every week, and... We also thank our good friend Mike Reed, multi-award Grammy Award winner, for uh, coming up with the music to our program that you're hearing right now. Our guest today uh, is a guy I got to know very well. He hired me away from the Chicago Cubs uh, at the end of the 1995 baseball season. The Arizona Diamondbacks had just been granted a franchise in the National League by Major League Baseball, and Jerry Colangelo who was the owner of the Phoenix Suns, had just become the owner of the Arizona Diamondbacks. He owned the Phoenix Mercury of the WNBA. He owned the Arizona Rattlers of the uh, Arena Football League. But he had brought baseball to Arizona. Um, And I, along with my bride, were two of the first roughly 25 people hired by the organization. I'll never forget, I, I got on a plane, and I was single at the time, and I flew out to Arizona, I had already decided not to come back to the Chicago Cubs. I had never met Jerry Colangelo in person. And I fly out there. He wants to meet with me just to talk philosophically about television, radio, broadcast of a baseball team on a local level, that kind of thing. And I get out there. We meet for about two hours. He says to me, he says, hey, look, I'm trying to help this guy here in town bring the NHL to Phoenix. And I need to make a couple of phone calls. Can you come back later on this afternoon? I said, sure. He says, uh, okay, I come back in later that afternoon, and within 15 minutes, he says, okay, what do we got to do to make it happen for you to come to work for the Arizona Diamondbacks tonight? This is two and a half years before the team starts to play its games, right? And I'll never forget, hour later, uh, sign the dotted line, and I'm working for the Diamondbacks. I call my mom at home in Cincinnati, and I say, uh, you're not going to believe this, but I'm moving to Arizona. Um, And that's the kind of guy that he was. If he wanted something to happen, he made it happen. You look through his career, whether it be early on as a general manager of the Phoenix Suns, later became the owner. He builds America West Arena. He eventually brings in Charles Barkley. They go to a couple of NBA finals during his tenure there. He starts the Diamondbacks. He's not going to lose games. He brings in Randy Johnson. He brings in Kurt Schilling. And the list goes on and on. And later becomes the director of USA Basketball. When USA Basketball was in the dumps, they had finished seventh in the world in 2010. And David Stern says, you're my guy. Can you take it over and run it? They've won nothing but gold ever since. Jerry Colangelo, part one of two, coming up next. You're dialed in with Tom Brenneman.
Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health, serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call one 844 Y-E-S-C-H-N-K. Jerry Colangelo was born in November of 1939 in Chicago Heights, Illinois, to an Italian-American working-class family. He is soon to be 82 years young this month. He played baseball and basketball in high school and enrolled at the University of Kansas to play basketball. He then decided to leave the University of Kansas to go to Illinois after a uh, prospective teammate by the name of Wilt Chamberlain left Kansas. Colangelo played hoops for the Fighting Illini, was an All-Big Ten performer, captain his senior year. For the next four years, he got out and worked many, many different jobs, including at a tuxedo rental shop in Chicago Heights. Colangelo wound up beginning his sports career in 1966 with the Chicago Bulls, going from marketing director to a scout, eventually the team president. Then in 1968, he was hired as the first general manager of the expansion Phoenix Suns at 29 years old. A year later, there's a coin flip. The Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks for the draft rights to a guy named Lou Alcindor out of UCLA, later to be known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, they would lose that coin flip. The Suns were competitive throughout the 70s. In 1976, they went to the NBA Finals and lost to the Boston Celtics. The 80s turned dark for Colangelo and the Suns, in large part to a drug scandal from some of its brightest stars. All that changed when Jerry Colangelo put together a group to buy the team in 1987. Shortly thereafter, he builds America West Arena, trades for Charles Barkley. The Suns go to the finals in 93. They would lose to Michael Jordan and the Bulls. He's won the NBA's Executive of the Year of the Award four times, more than anybody else. In 1994, he puts together a group to bring Major League Baseball to Arizona and launches the birth of the Arizona Diamondbacks. The second year of the franchise, they go to the playoffs. The fourth year, they win the World Series, led by Randy Johnson and Curt Schilling. He's owned the Phoenix Mercury of the WNBA, the Arizona Rattlers of the Arena Football League, and helped bring the NHL to Arizona. 
In the summer of 2005, Colangelo agreed to become director of USA Basketball. The United States had not won a major international competition since 2000. Since then, gold medals in 08, 12, 16, 104, 7, the record. He's in the Basketball Hall of Fame, the American, the Italian-American Hall of Fame. He is the current chairman of the Basketball Hall of Fame. He's involved in real estate, Grand Canyon University. And most importantly, he and his wife, Joan, have four children and ten grandchildren. And Jerry Colangelo, has there uh, anything that I just ripped off that I left off that you are the most proud of? Uh, no. Tom, first of all, it's a little humbling to... Um think about uh, all the years and all the involvements that uh, that I've had but uh, let, let's just put it this way I feel very blessed uh, that I've had the opportunities that I've had and great people to help uh, me along the way in each of the things you mentioned and so uh, you know I look back on my life and feel that uh, uh, it's gone by too quickly. I think most people would probably say that as they as they age. Um, but it's been a great ride. You know, I'm a strong Christian, and I believe God had a plan for my life. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, all I'm doing is playing it out. I follow the lead. Uh, never really sought to to achieve various things that you mentioned that just they were presented to me and. You do the best you can to make the best of it. And so I'm very thankful. It's been a humbling experience, but uh, uh, I, I feel good about the people that, that I've been involved with who I might have helped along the way, and certainly they helped me. You grew up in an area called Hungry Hill, and, and I had the chance to go back with you, the, the, the blessing to go back with you when you were inducted into the Italian-American Hall of Fame on a weekend in Chicago many, many years ago. Right. Um, your mom and dad, uh, when you're growing up, uh, it's an Italian-American immigrant family uh, that had come over, um, and, and they taught you many, many things. You look back now. Is there one thing that stands out for you more than anything else that they taught you that you carry with you to this day? You know, it's kind of uh, all-encompassing. I would say this. We didn't have much, but whatever we had, we shared. So did all the people in the neighborhood. We were welcome in anyone's home at any time and vice versa. Um, You learned things that, you know, who am I? Uh, Whatever I am, I, I learned uh, in the old neighborhood, uh, without question, you know, hard work people, you know, with lunch buckets who had to, uh, scrap to get things, uh, paid for and do things. So, um, I think I got my foundation, uh, in the old neighborhood through not only family, but people that just took me under their wing. There was an old Italian guy, an immigrant who took young guys under his wing, and I was one of them. And one night he pointed to a star in the sky and he said, Jerry, in broken English, he said, Jerry, do you see the star? And I said, yes, Mike, I do. He says, well, remember, it, uh, it, it's better to be on that star for one day than never get there at all. And that was a driver for me mm-hmm. uh, my entire lifetime. You shoot for the stars, you go for it, uh, don't be afraid to fail. In our neighborhood, you you learn by failing, not by winning. 
And so um, that kind of molded me at a very young age. It's hard to imagine, I think, Jerry, for a lot of kids in this generation where where every game uh, in, let's say, college basketball is on television. If you're a Duke fan through the years, you watched every game that Zion Williamson played in college. It wasn't very many of them. He was only there for a year. But you watched every game if you wanted to. You're coming out of high school. You're a great baseball player. You're a great basketball player. You decide to play basketball. And you want to go to Kansas because you want to play with Wilt Chamberlain. Had you ever seen Wilt Chamberlain play basketball? Basketball? Yeah, just on um, on TV once or twice, um, but I knew what he what he meant, you know, in terms of winning a championship, and I also knew that the guards at that time at KKU were were lacking, you know, in terms of shooting the ball, and that was one of my strengths, and I was recruited that way, and. I had many choices, uh, fortunately, at the time to go most anywhere, uh, but I wanted to win a championship, and I figured we'd win it with Wilt, uh, and I could start as a sophomore because freshmen were ineligible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of broke my heart when he announced that uh, uh, he was quitting to sign with the Globetrotters and make $75,000. That was 1957. Uh, which is a lot of money today, but it certainly was a lot of money back then. And so, but it was meant to be. Uh, Illinois was a great spot for me. It was kind of home ground for me. Um, And that name recognition, when you think about it, led a few years later uh, to being asked to be a part of the Chicago Bulls startup. And so, I'm thankful that it worked out the way it did. I didn't get that championship, um, but certainly there were a lot of championships in my future. I didn't know it at the time, but I'm very thankful for all of that. Talk about when you get out of Illinois, though, Jerry, you didn't go right to work for the Chicago Bulls. I mean, I've read stories, and, and including in your book, that says you were working at this uh, tuxedo rental company and, and all that kind of thing. I mean, once you got yeah. back into the neighborhood out of college and you weren't in sports, uh, was there ever a time where you're saying to yourself, yeah, yeah I, I'm going to end up like a lot of guys I grew up with right back in my old neighborhood? Well, interestingly, when I left Illinois, I had choices. I could have coached high school basketball and be a teacher. I was trained for that. Number two, I interviewed with some uh, companies that wanted me in their management training programs. Uh, And then thirdly, I had a friend who was kind of a brother, uh, father figure in some ways from the old neighborhood. And we started a company, and I was a partner in that company. But I was playing semi-pro ball for 50 bucks a game back then. Uh, I was the only white guy on an all-black Chicago team <laughs> uh, and played all our games on the road. And uh, very, very funny stories and great memories about those times for those three years. Um, but once the the Bulls became a reality, uh, that finished my playing days, and uh, it was the start of a whole. I found that I was going to be part of a team in Chicago. I'm a Chicago guy, so uh, it was a big thrill, and uh, uh, was could not have been happier. Had no idea that the NBA was going to explode, and I was going to be part of that. 
You're a marketing guy, I think, by trade. And if you want to disagree with that, you, you tell me. But, but I've always felt like, you know, not only was your expertise in, in athletics and, and recognition of talent, but you also are a marketing guy, which, you know, you, you did some of that with the Bulls and, and you keep working your way up and so on and so forth. Now, now the Phoenix Suns. And, 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 I, and, I, and I go back to the old NBA commissioner, uh, you know, Walter Jay Walter Kennedy. Kennedy, where he said it was too hot, it's too small, and too far away to ever be considered an NBA market. Yet, you saw something in Phoenix. How did that come to fruition? Well, it was kind of interesting. Um, my boss in Chicago declined. Um, you know, didn't want to hold me back as, as, you know, Seattle the year before as an expansion team uh, was trying to recruit me to come there, uh, not as GM, but something close to it. And I passed. I said, I'm happy in Chicago. Uh, but then the following year, Phoenix and Milwaukee um, were added, and I had offers from both franchises. And uh, when I came to Phoenix for that first visit, I saw a blank canvas. I saw an incredible Western kind of wild town, so to speak, Uh, but you could paint your own portrait. And I I fell in love with that thought process. And so I chose chose Phoenix. um, And a couple of weeks later, my small family, uh, uh, three kids, two, four, and six, nine suitcases and $300 in my pocket. And we got on a plane and never looked back. That was in 1968. Think about that for a minute now. I mean, you have three children. You're going to a good job. It's an incredible opportunity. But you're going into a town where nobody's quite sure, except for maybe you and a handful of others. And you got $300 to your name? That's correct. That's absolutely Were you scared? Scary, no, see, that's that's the other thing. I think I was being groomed all along. As an athlete, um, you're competitive. At least I was very competitive. You know, I'm doing a podcast later today with someone from um, uh, Australia. He forwarded to me out of the archives some photos of me playing um, basketball. No, and it was I'm looking at these photos, and they're like 60 years old. And, you know, it puts things in per perspective. And so um, I, I just feel that um, I was willing to take risk. I tell the young people today, don't be afraid to take a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to have confidence in yourself, but be willing to step on the plank. You might get pushed. You might get shoved off. Anything could happen, but get up, be the last man standing. And so my, my, my mental approach to things was, uh, if I have the opportunity, that's all I could ask for. Then it's up to me to get the job done. And so I wasn't afraid to fail. And I give that advice to a lot of young people. Your first year, you win 16 games total. And now all of a sudden, you're in a coin flip. Uh, you know, and everybody knows it's going to be Lou Alcindor, who later became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, going to be the number one pick in the draft. You lose that coin flip. Walk us through what that was like. I mean, today that would be a made-for-television event, all that kind of thing. What was it like back then in 69? Well, it was, it was far from <laughs> I'm uh, sure. major television <laughs> yeah. because uh, Johnny Kerr uh, and myself, 
or in my offices here in Phoenix, uh, in Milwaukee, GM and coach were at their desks in uh, Milwaukee, and Walter Kennedy and a few people were in New York. It was a phone call. And, uh, you know, I had a contest here in Phoenix to get the fans involved. 51.2% if we got the opportunity to call the the coin toss, call heads. Uh, The commissioner said, if Milwaukee goes along, that's fine. I don't have a problem. Milwaukee said, sure. So the coin was flipped in the air, and it actually came up heads, and then he flipped it over on his wrist and called it tails. That little move from (laughs) what took place just broke my heart. It took me, I'll tell you what I did. After dealing with the media, I jumped in my car and I drove around Arizona for about three or four hours and uh, just kind of getting my head back on my, you know, shoulders. Sure. And went back to the office and said, you know, uh, we're going to do it the hard way. And so in that second season, we won 39 games. It was the biggest turnaround in the history of the NBA. I actually took over coaching at midseason myself, fired my good friend Johnny Kerr, and we made the playoffs in our second season. And we had the Lakers with Wes, Baylor, and Chamberlain down three games to one. Um, And they came back and beat us. But we established ourselves very quickly uh, I signed Connie Hawkins out of the ABA, traded for Paul Silas. Now, these are names only some of the older sure, people don't sure. remember. But uh, uh, so we established ourselves quickly, and we had a great run for 40 years um, with the Phoenix Suns. It was always considered a model franchise. Yep. Um, very, very competitive. And. I loved every minute of it. When you start to build that thing up, Jerry, you, know, you mentioned some of the guys you bring in, including Paul Westfall. You had Garfield Hurd you brought in. You draft a real fan favorite who's still been around working for you forever, Alvin Adams, among others. And, and, and in 75-76, you go 42-40, and 40, but you get in the playoffs. Uh, you beat Seattle. You knock off the defending world champion Golden State Warriors. And now the NBA Finals. First ever trip to the finals for the Phoenix Suns. And you're still the only professional sports franchise in Phoenix at the time of the major sports. Uh, Game five, triple overtime game against Boston. Uh, Is that still one of the greatest games in the history of the NBA finals? Well, not only my opinion, that's the opinion of of the historians that uh, it was absolutely, if not the greatest game of all time, certainly one of the top two. And so, yeah, I remember vividly what what transpired. And, uh, uh, you know, we had a call that should have been made that wasn't called. Uh, Paul Silas, who at that point was with the Celtics, called timeout when they were over the limit. They didn't have any timeouts. Mm-hmm. It should have been the technical. We should have gone to the line, and the game could have ended. It didn't go that route because uh, the the official, Richie Powers, as we saw on tape, just kind of turned his head the other way. And uh, so be it. It wasn't meant to be. Uh, But the triple overtime game, the circumstances, the heat in the old Boston Garden uh, was overwhelming. And um, uh, that game was 
one of the all-time greats, and then we went home, and uh, we just didn't have any gas left. But uh, I remember being interviewed on the old Boston court with Red Arbach at one corner and me at another on national TV, and I'm looking up at some of the, the flags of championship banners, um, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, we're a young franchise. We've only been in business seven years, and here we are. Um, we're going to be back a lot. I didn't know it was going to take like 17 years mm-hmm. to come back. Um, you, you, you go to the playoffs eight years in a row, but but now all of a sudden you have three players indicted on drug charges. Walter Davis, your greatest star, has to testify against his teammates in a plea deal. You lose a player named Nick Vanos to a plane crash. He dies. Uh, so the franchise is in disarray. I mean, complete disarray. Uh it opens, however, the door for you to put together a group in 87 to buy this team. Now, today you can look back on it and say, you know, that's one of the smartest moves in the history of professional sports. But back then, did you have your family or friends that you really thought highly of their opinions that looked at you and said, Jerry, this is a major mistake buying this team? No one ever said it would be a mistake to do so. Um, and again, you know, some of the advice I give young people today is you have to recognize opportunity when it presents itself. Sometimes it walks right by you and you miss it. And so, um, I knew that ownership was a a little bit disenchanted and I had an unusual relationship in that I had full autonomy from day one, even at the early age of 29 with the franchise here. And so, um, you know, I had an option, believe it or not, that was always there, that if they ever wanted out, that I would have first shot. And, of course, that's what happened. And I had six weeks to get it done uh, and was able to get it done. And uh, the media asked me, why why would you do this? You paid the highest price ever paid for a franchise, yep. which was $44 million. Um they said, why would you do that? And I said, well, there's three reasons. Um, I believe in this community. I believe in this market. Number two, I believe in the NBA. And three, I believe in myself. I, all I've ever wanted was the opportunity uh, to have this opportunity. And so we moved ahead. And then, of course, um, in 19, excuse me, in 2004, I sold the Suns after buying them for $44 million with a bunch of partners. Uh, we sold it for over $400 million, which was the highest price ever paid in the NBA at that time. And it was true for the next seven years before the Warriors were purchased for about $50 million more. And, of course, that looks like pocket change today in professional mm-hmm. sports with the inflation of uh, valuations of, of franchises, and that's a responsible. Who's responsible for that? It's it's television, it's tech, technology, it's uh, cable, it's all of the things that bring um, an awful lot of value, and that's what happened to franchise valuations. You eventually build America West Arena '92, and, and by now you've acquired Kevin Johnson, Marty Nance, Jeff Hornacek. You draft Dan Marley, Thunder Dan Marley, but the but the cherry on top of the Sunday, no doubt, is Charles Barkley. You make the deal and, and you bring him into Phoenix. 
Um, how well, Jerry, did you know him? W- were you ever, af- not afraid, because that's not your nature. W- were you ever concerned about Barkley coming to a market like Arizona? Uh, and-, and was there anything that once you got to know him well in a short amount of time that surprised you about him? Um, I didn't know him very well. Cotton Fitzsimmons, who was my director of player personnel, um, had a somewhat relationship with him. And if you knew Cotton, he was one of the most positive people you would ever meet in your life. Loved him. Uh, And a great, great guy. And and we miss him uh, tremendously. But, uh, you know, know, we had very, very good teams, as you said, just prior to the trade. And um, in in looking at Barkley, we felt that he could be the guy to get us over the hump. We had a big hump in Chicago with Michael. You know, Michael Jordan. Of course. And so um, we decided, again, not being afraid to pull the trigger, uh, let's go for it. Uh, before he, when he arrived the summer of 93, 92, 93, uh, we had built a new building. The, the building was sold out for the year. Uh, we were ready to roll. We had the best record in basketball that entire season with Barkley. Um, and then we almost lost in the first round to the Lakers. But we came back from that, get to the finals. Uh, we have the home court advantage, and we lose twice at home, which was unbelievable. Then we go to Chicago, which is a tough place to play, and we win two out of three. And then come back, and uh, Paxton hit a shot that I still see in my dreams mm-hmm. that uh, cost us a championship, and, uh, um, you know, so be it. So, look, Barkley was a great, great player. He had one of the most enthusiastic, energetic, uh, fan-building players you would ever come across. And he did all those things. He was MVP that first year with us. The next two years, we should have won a championship. We got beat by the Houston team twice in a row uh, when it never should have happened. Uh, So Barkley had some great years here, and then we moved on. But your relationship with him, Jerry, uh, became strained near the end. What's it like today? It's fine. It's fine. You know, time has a way of healing uh, relationships. And, um, you know, a good example is when he went into the Hall of Fame, uh, he asked me to be the presenter, Yep. Uh, which kind of said it all. That kind of sealed it. You never won the whole thing in in your time with the Suns, as you've alluded to. Um, in our society uh, today, uh, in the media, uh, fans, whatever the case may be, do, do we put too much stock in uh, a team that doesn't win it? Uh, a player, and you're a Chicago guy, and, and Ernie Banks, you know, as great as he was, he never won a World Series. And, and there's a laundry list of guys like that in every sport. Sure. Do, do we sure. do we make too much of that? Um, probably so. I, I would say so. You know, in, in my capacity as chairman of the uh, Hall of Fame in basketball, um, and, and being involved with the committee, uh, candidates and you look at their records, um, you know, I hear people talking about that. Well, he never won a championship. Well, a lot of great players never won a championship, but they were great players and had incredible careers. 
Um, so that's one of the criteria. Did he ever win a championship? But it's not, it's not all encompassing. There's a lot of other things that go into it. And so, um, yeah, I agree that it's overplayed um, because if you look at that long list in every sport of great athletes who ne- or great coaches who never won, yep. um, you have to give them their due. That's my personal opinion. This has been part one of our two-part series with Jerry Colangelo. In next week's show, we're going to talk about the advent of the Arizona Diamondbacks and getting the phone call from David Stern to become director of USA Basketball, which was down and out. Thanks for listening to Dialed In. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.